Hey, this is Jason from Slapdash, and this episode is sponsored by 606 Iron, located in the Big M Plaza in Whitley City, Kentucky. 606 Iron has cardio equipment, free weights, numerous weight training machines, weekly kettlebell classes, and tanning beds. Stop by 606 Iron for membership information or call 606-310-4918. History, art, science, and everything else. They slap down a new topic and dash off to next. It's a great big world with so much to know. Like cryptids, time travel, and the history of Poe. If you want to be a smarty, better learn something fast. With Shannon and Jason on Slapdash Podcast. On today's episode, we are going retro as we discuss the top 20 movies of the 80s. Across from me is a man who loves Mr. Miyagi, enjoys riding in DeLoreans, and is a car- and is a car-carrying member of the Goonies. <laughs> Shannon, how are you today? I'm doing well, man. I've, I've been back in time. I've waxed on and waxed off, and I've got my credentials here for the Goonies if you want to check that out, too. <laughs> I, I'll trust you. Okay. All right. Trust that sounds good. So do you like 80s movies? I, you know, I didn't know how much I liked 80s movies until I went through this list and looked at the voting options. Right. I had a hard time with this one a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I really did. You know, we actually had, I think, 22 options. We did. And, uh, yeah, so we, you know, people still, you know, we asked them to uh, select their top 10. And, yeah, I could have easily got maybe 12 or 13 on there. Yeah. yeah, I had I had a little bit of a difficult time. There are a lot of good movies there. I had to try to use my discernment a little bit to, to decide. <laughs> really, okay, if we're talking top eighties movies, what what really is the best? What what's the top here? Because right. I, I could have picked just about any on that list and said, yeah, I enjoyed that movie. Yeah, because honestly, I think I enjoyed to some degree all those movies. Yeah. I, I think I had watched at some point all those movies. I didn't really dislike any of them. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I kind of had a difficult time picking just a, a top 10. The 80s was a big era, man. There, right. there was a lot of different genres represented here. Notice that we took uh, movies that were comedies. We have some horror movies on here, yep. science fiction. There's a drama. It's, this is a good selection. I think this accurately represents the 80s. So what we did is uh, obviously we uh, polled the Slapdash listeners and we asked them uh, their opinions. And so what we have here is a list of the top 20 as voted on by Slapdash listeners. Number 20, Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th is one of the most successful horror movies in actually the history of movie franchises. The series, of course, revolves around a crazed, machete-wielding murderer named Jason Voorhees and the countless people he kills at Camp Crystal Lake. However, the original movie, which debuted in 1980, focuses on Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees. Good old Mrs. Voorhees, right. <laughs> when you say it like that, she sounds kind of tame. Not too bad. Yeah. Right? Well, Mrs. Voorhees, uh, she loses her mind, and she kills all the camp counselors <laughs> as revenge for her son dying due to negligence of past counselors. Shame, not, shame on them. Not even those counselors. Yeah, it was not, right. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, yeah, I just others. Yeah, I didn't even know your son. Right? <laughs> she hates counselors and everyone who looks like counselors. <laughs> just in general. Friday the 13th was the highest grossing uh, horror franchise in history until the 2018 release of Halloween. Oh, okay. In fact, uh, Friday the 13th was created due to the extreme success 
of the Halloween film just a couple of years earlier. And of course, we've covered Halloween extensively quite a bit back a few times, uh, yeah, back October. There. Probably cover it some more in uh, the future. Oh, yeah, we're big Halloween fans. Uh, a few interesting facts about Friday the 13th the original name was Long Night at Camp Blood. Camp Blood? Really? <laughs> Long Night at Camp Blood. I'm, I hmm. think Friday the 13th probably was a good choice right there. Yeah, good, good maneuver. <laughs> it there. rolls off the tongue better. It does. Right? Uh, the camp where the film was shot in is still open today and is located in Blairsville, New Jersey. And you know the, the famous music, right? Or that sound, really. That, that yeah. Uh, yeah. So apparently, when you're actually looking at it, the person who actually scored the, the music for the movie, that there was a, uh, he wanted something, right? He wanted something catchy, something uh, memorable. And so there is a particular scene in the movie where Mrs. Voorhees is talking about what her son told her. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, so Mrs. Voorhees says that her son says, "Kill her, mommy." Mm. Okay. Which is that's terrifying in its own right. There. That's awful. So yeah. So he said that he he really wanted to work with something you know something uh, uh, with those words. And so that uh, the uh, kill, kill, kill mom that kill no mom. Yeah, that's where that come from. So actually, on paper, it's actually spelled like K I you know dash K I dash K I dash ma dash ma dash m and it's that sound that man and it comes from kill her mom oh my gosh (laughs) just hearing that in my headset as you say that is terrifying (laughs) i'm glad that we're recording this in daylight right (laughs) yeah yeah uh and then finally something that i thought was sort of funny about this one is that uh jason uh, that name almost did not get used it uh, originally the name was josh just just plain old josh it was just josh and they decided that josh uh josh didn't sound uh just like evil or sort of like mean enough (laughs) so they gave it uh they gave it the name jason Jason. so i guess you know we share that i was gonna say yeah so so does that make you a bit more evil than the joshes i'm gonna ask my mom and i'm gonna say you know mom (laughs) at any point did you really think i was gonna be called josh and then just you know i just looked mean she thought about it yeah maybe i go jason yeah makes more sense Number 19, Terminator. The Terminator is a 1984 American science fiction film directed by James Cameron. The film stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator, a cyborg assassin sent back in time from 2029 to 1984 to kill Sarah Connor, played by Linda Hamilton. Uh, Linda Hamilton's son, or Sarah Connor's son, named John, will one day become the savior of mankind in a war against the machines. I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, did, have you seen The Terminator and all of its various yep. iterations? Oh, yeah. It, it's pretty good. And it's a little weird. So the year you just mentioned there was 2029? Yeah, I thought about that. It's not that far off all of a sudden, right? All of a sudden, yeah. We're, we're just under a decade away from yeah. the supposed apocalypse of uh, AI intelligence just taking over. And I remember that scene. You know, well, actually, you know, several scenes where I guess it's set in 2029 and you see sort of societies broken down and robots are walking around oh, man. and just, yeah, so that's that's a little bit frightening that we're, uh, <laughs> according to that, less than a decade away. Oh, yeah. And I think in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, it shows the, um, I, I guess, when Skynet actually attacks mankind right. and launches the nuclear weapons. Yeah. I just remember the scene of uh, Sarah Connor holding on to the fence, and I think she's yelling at the kids on the playground to run away, that something's about to happen, and this is all a dream. And then all of a sudden, you just see fire sweep across the landscape, and it just burns everything yeah, away. Awful. That, that scene is seared into my brain. And James Cameron, you know, thanks for that, because that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> 
here's a fun fact. So James Cameron, as we mentioned, was the director of The Terminator. And Jason, he first thought of the idea for The Terminator while he was directing another movie called Piranha 2, The Spawning. So hmm. have you ever seen that movie or heard of it? Uh, I've heard of it, but I don't think I've watched it. No. I don't think I'd uh, seen it either. I'd, I'd heard of the name Piranha, but I don't know how terrifying that actually is as a horror movie, low budget or otherwise, because it's right. just like, just don't go in the water. Just stay out of the water. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like Aquaman. You know, if the villains <laughs> just take two steps backward toward the shore, I think we're... He's helpless. <laughs> what's he going to do? Uh, but yeah, so... Cameron was working on this other movie, Piranha 2, and he was sick. He, he was actually experiencing a fever. He was under a lot of stress because he hated the movie, absolutely despised the whole concept of Piranha 2. So he had a fever. He went to sleep that night, and he had a dream, and he dreamed of a solid chrome torso crawling out of an explosion and dragging itself across the floor. And... I, that's that is Terminator. Wow. To me, I mean, you know, so so he had that vivid of a, a scene in his mind already constructed, and he woke up and he later wrote the story of the Terminator and completely disowned Piranha Two. <laughs> uh, and in fact, if you look at you know some of the interviews he's done, he now counts the Terminator as his first movie. Really? <laughs> Just completely discredits Piranha 2 altogether. <laughs> I've washed my hands with it, right? Well, nothing to do with That's Piranha. right. So here's one, one more fun fact uh, about the Terminator. So they had someone else in mind to play him originally. And can you guess who that was? I bet you can't. <laughs> if you say Michael Keaton, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass out. No. Okay. No, they, they weren't that smart back okay. then. You know, they were saving him for a 1989 movie called Batman. Uh, but no, actually, uh, the film's production company originally wanted O.J. Simpson to play the Terminator. Really? <laughs> they sure did. I did not know that. Yeah. James Cameron um, actually heard about this. He, he wasn't in charge at the time of choosing exactly who was going to play the Terminator. But Arnold Schwarzenegger was up for the role of Kyle Reese. He, he's the guy who actually comes back through time to protect Sarah Connor and consequently actually right. becomes the father of John Connor in that process. But um, whenever James Cameron went out to meet Arnold Schwarzenegger, his plan was to get into an argument with him. Yeah, he, he went out and he set out to get into an argument. On purpose. On purpose so that he could go back to the studio and say, I don't want this guy. Because he really wasn't happy with either O.J. Simpson or Arnold Schwarzenegger. Huh. So he sat down with him and the two hit it off. There was no arguing. And James Cameron actually went back with the opposite opinion and said, okay, I changed change my mind. I want this guy playing the actual role of the Terminator himself. And the rest is history, man. I think it worked out. <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> they made some bucks. Yeah. Number 18, Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street was directed by Wes Craven and hit theaters in 1984. The movie cost $1.8 million to produce, and within 72 hours after hitting the big screen, they had already made a profit. Mm. The movie features one of the most iconic villains in movie history in Freddy Krueger. Krueger has a very unique look with the red and green striped sweater, the hat, and of course those terrifying glove with knives for fingers type thing he's got going on there. It's awful. <laughs> in the movie, Freddy would attack teenagers in their dreams, and if they died in their dream, they actually, of course, died in real life. The entire movie only took 32 days to shoot, and everything about Freddy Krueger was based on past experiences 
references from the actual past of director Wes Craven. Mm. For instance, uh, the name Freddy was the name of Wes Craven's childhood bully. Oh, really? thought that was very interesting. That is. Uh, the hat that Freddie wears had its origin from a, uh, a drunk guy in Craven's neighborhood that always sort of scared him to death, just walking in the streets, and he would see... He just had this hat on? Just, yeah, and that hat just sort of, you know, stood out to Craven huh. all these years later. As for Freddie's sweater, those colors were found to be emotionally unsettling uh, in an article that Wes Craven was reading right before the production of the movie. So like psychologically right. produces so, some sort of unsettling yeah, the, fear, disturbance sort right, of thing in the mind. Those colors don't really go together like horizontally. What are they? It's not written green. Did you say it was red and brown or I think what are the actual colors? Uh, or maybe it is red and green. I think, they, I think it's a shade of green. It says red and green. Huh. A weird shade of green. I always wondered about Christmas, man. Red and green. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> How's that work? I don't know. I thought the same thing. But and yeah. see, I'm actually like sort of partially colorblind, honestly. Mm. And so I have problems like with greens and browns and like navy blues and blacks and certain shades. Sure. So when I read that, I thought, well, maybe, I guess so. Maybe I, I wasn't sure about that. That's, that's <laughs> that interesting. a little bit weird. Yeah. And then finally, uh, the, the finger knives. This came from Wes Craven's fear of his cat's claws. Are you kidding? <laughs> no. So we have all this deep-seated emotional, psychological <laughs> things going on. And then the the claws for Freddy Krueger literally just came from his fear of, of Wes Craven's cats scratching him. So Freddy Krueger comes from a bully, a drunk man, and a cat. That 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 yes, basically that's correct. forms the killer. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that is Freddy Krueger. And of course, there were you know several sequels to this. Oh, there's a and, bunch. You know, when you talk about serial killers in the '80s and movies, obviously Freddy's right up there. He is. And I notice his name's not uh, Josh Krueger. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> it makes him sound more like a pop star. That's right. <laughs> Number seventeen, The Lost Boys. The Lost Boys is a 1987 American teen horror comedy film directed by Joel Schumacher. The title is in reference to The Lost Boys in J.M. Barry's stories about Peter Pan and Neverland, who, like the vampires from this movie, never grow up. The film follows two teenage brothers, Michael and Sam, who move with their mother to a small town in Northern California. The older brother, Michael, falls for a girl named Star, who turns out to be enthrall to David, leader of a local gang of vampires. And I love how this just, uh, it, it's just a, described as a local gang of vampires. Like, that's just so common, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. you've, you've got uh, locals in your neighborhood. You've got the neighborhood kids. Oh, there's the, the local group of vampires over here. You know, it's just so casual <laughs> that this is just a thing. Uh, but in the story, the younger brother, Sam, and some new friends that he makes must save Michael and Star from the vampires. And that's kind of the premise of The Lost Boys. Is this one you've seen? Oh, 15, 20, 20 times. <laughs> Are you a fan? Uh, I am a fan. This movie actually creeped me out a little bit. I mean, because somehow or another, it made vampires kind of real. It sort of demystified the Count Dracula, right. you know, in the castle that these guys you almost sort of felt sorry for, mm -hmm. even though they were doing what they were doing. They just kind of seemed like uh, that they belong like on the island of, you know, misfit toys or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They just simply didn't fit in. Yeah. And there's something about that, that that made that movie stick out to me. I don't know, but I, I was a big fan of this movie. They didn't seem like monsters. Uh, I think 
for the first time they they could just be the person next door right and, and yeah. i think that added another level of scariness to them because you didn't know who the vampires were whereas in movies past except maybe dracula the vampires were always predicted as these monsters and you could tell yeah. right away just from their faces oh we, we don't want to go near those folks right <laughs> but these were just teenagers man and you could yeah. just look at them and they could be the person next door the kid at your high school and you would have no idea that they're living off of uh of blood and whatever <laughs> else is going on there uh but the lost boys has often been cited as an inspiration for joss whedon's buffy the vampire slayer which i really enjoyed oh, growing yeah. up that was a, a really good really good show and a really good movie as well so if you enjoyed buffy the vampire slayer which included young guys who kind of look like billy idol and also Kiefer sutherland and <laughs> black coats you can thank the lost boys <laughs> white wedding <laughs> number 16 rambo first blood the movie First Blood debuted in 1982, but honestly, everyone calls all these movies simply Rambo. It's just Rambo. Right, yeah. yeah. I wasn't even aware it was called First Blood. I thought it was Rambo First Blood. <laughs> Rambo 1, Rambo 2. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's it. It should be, because that's what everyone's going to call them. Oh, yeah. Uh, the movie's main character, John Rambo, is played by Sylvester Stallone, and he is a Vietnam veteran who basically is on the run from a local sheriff and his deputies in the forests of uh, Washington State. Rambo feels that the police did not treat him properly, and what ensues is a big hide-and-seek game. Rambo is easily one of the most iconic 80s movies characters. Uh, the film cost $15 million to produce, but cleared $125 million. And this is very interesting, Shannon. Listen to the actors that turned down the part of Rambo. Oh, man. Ready for this list. I, I don't know if my heart can handle it. Go ahead. Who, who missed out? Steve McQueen. Okay. Now, all these folks turned it down. Yeah, they didn't do it. They did not do okay. it. Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood. Really? Al Pacino, oh. Robert De Niro, huh. John Travolta, <laughs> right. and Dustin Hoffman. Really? All of them turned it down? All of them turned it down. Apparently, this movie took years to create huh. for various reasons, but one... One of the the main reasons, the difficulties was identifying who was going to play who was going to do it. Yeah, who was going to play John Rambo, and so the directors finally settled on Sylvester Stallone uh, coming uh, off of his success in Rocky. Okay, yeah, uh, but he was not their first, second, third, fourth, or fifth choice. But as fate would have it, <laughs> he was the correct choice, right? He he was the best choice. Although I would love to have seen John Travolta out there being John Rambo and just summer loving, you know, coming off of his Grease success. <laughs> He's up like in a tree stand with that paint all over him. Oh, man. That would that would be great. Number 15, Coming to America. Coming to America is a 1988 American romantic comedy film directed by John Landis and based on a story created by Eddie Murphy, who also starred in the lead role. And I don't think Eddie Murphy can make a bad movie everything he's ever made is just it's hilarious it's just great it's great it's memorable but in this film eddie murphy plays akim jofer the crown prince of the fictional african nation of zamunda <laughs> who travels to the united states in hope of finding a woman he can marry and it starts out that he's engaged to be married it's sort of an arranged marriage that his mom and dad have set up for him and I remember one scene where he kind of calls her to the side. He, he just calls a wedding, the wedding to a halt. He says, come over here for a second. And yeah. he said, we'll be back. And, you know, my, meanwhile, they're looking at all these people who have gathered <laughs> at the wedding and they go off into the side room. And he says, okay, 
you know, like, like, what do you, what's your favorite color? And she's like, whatever your favorite color is. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking <laughs> about. And he's like, yeah, but what is your favorite color? And she, she just repeats, you know, whatever your favorite color is. And uh, he says, stand on one foot, jump up and down, bark like a dog. And that's what she, you know, yeah. she does all that. So he decides, I'm just going to choose a random place on the planet and go there and try to find my bride. So right. he, he goes to a globe, he spins it around, he puts his <laughs> finger on it, and he says, oh, Queens. There, there must be... <laughs> Queens, New York. <laughs> Queens, New York. That's there, awesome. Uh, surely I can find a queen in Queens, New York. So so that's where he goes. And uh, the, the rest is just one of the most memorable comedic adventures in the history of cinema. This, this I, I is love awesome that movie. movie. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a cool fact. So James Earl Jones and Madge Sinclair play the mom and dad yep. of uh, Akeem. So cool parallel is that they also voice Mufasa and Sarabi in The Lion King. Both of them? They sure do, which I knew J- James Earl Jones yeah, I knew that. was yeah. Mufasa and also the, the dad yeah. of Akeem, but I, I didn't realize that the wife, Madge Sinclair, played both roles as well. So that's kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So my favorite scene in this entire movie, uh, they're at a sporting event, and Akeem at this point is portraying almost like a janitor uh, or I guess like a fry cook slash janitor <laughs> right. at, at yeah. a place called McDowell's. McDowell's. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. So they're at a sporting event. He goes into uh, the restroom, and whenever he's coming out, there's someone who recognizes him. Oh, this guy's the prince of Zamunda. (laughs) So he falls on his face and starts bowing, and he's just like, oh, my king, my king, my prince, my prince. (laughs) Meanwhile, the people who don't know he's the prince who he's there with come by, and they look at him, you know, like, what in the world is going on here? And then Akeem gets up, and he he tells the guy to go on his way, and they said, Akeem, who was that? And he just looks at him, he says, Oh, just a man I met in the restroom. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. I know. I love that part, man. I mean, I even love the whole McDowell's thing. Yeah. Uh, when, when the guys, you know, he goes, they have the golden arches. <laughs> we have the golden, golden arch. We have the golden arch. <laughs> and he acts like it's so different, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Number 14, Gremlins. Gremlins debuted in 1984 and tells the story of a cute little creature that is called a mogwai. Uh, and in the movie, a father purchases the strange and adorable little creature for his son as a Christmas present. The young man names him Gizmo, and all is well at first, Shannon. It goes know. well. Yeah, you've seen you've seen this movie, as long right? as things are dry. That's oh okay. So <laughs> there's some rules, right? That was the very next thing I was going to say. So yeah. there there's basically three rules. They don't like light, especially sunlight. So don't take the mogwai out in sunlight; it'll kill him. Right. There's also no water. Yeah. And then there's also the big one, never, ever feed them after midnight. So as soon as you know these rules, right, in the movie, you know within 15 minutes they're going to be broken. (laughs) And then we don't know what's going to happen at first. Because the movie has to happen. But the movie has to happen. Otherwise, we just got a kid and his cute pet. Who follows the rules, (laughs) right? So unfortunately, or fortunately for the movie's sake, these rules are broken, and chaos ensues when Gizmo pops these little fur balls off his back, and suddenly there are several more mogwais. However, these new mogwais are not very nice. Uh, a couple of interesting facts uh, from the Gremlins. This movie, along with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, are the reasons why the rating of PG-13 was created. Oh, really? Yeah, that that a lot of folks thought that these, these two movies in particular, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlins, it clearly was an R, but it also clearly wasn't PG. Right. And so there had to be something in the middle. And literally, these movies forced the movie industry to create this PG-13 rating. 
Okay. So I thought was I was, can see that. Yeah. I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, and actually, the first movie ever, uh, the first ever PG thirteen movie was in also nineteen eighty four. Right after this, called Red Dawn. If you've oh, ever watched Red Dawn, yeah, I have. that was the first ever movie. PG thirteen. PG thirteen. Yeah. Gotcha. Another interesting fact is that during the early eighties, obviously CGI did not exist, so all the shots were done with animatronic puppets. Mm-hmm. So each day after shooting, security checked the trunks of every car leaving the set to ensure that no one was stealing any of the puppets because they were extremely expensive. Oh, okay. and they checked they checked even the actors. Just their trunks. Just their trunks in the back of the car. Just, I mean, I guess by the off chance that they would steal a puppet. Mm. <laughs> but uh, apparently they were extremely, extremely uh, expensive. So what about the guy that throws Gizmo in the glove box, though? They check in glove boxes, too? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I got that specific or not, but it'd be sure funny if it was. And I actually have a, uh, a special connection to, to this one because my oldest daughter, Kennedy, from the time she was about probably three and a half until about five and a half or six, she carried around Gizmo, this this little doll with her Gizmo, uh, probably you know six seven inches tall, four inches wide, and for two solid years she carried this little creature around and was absolutely convinced that it was going to come to life. Really? Because we told her it would. Oh, well. <laughs> and so everything went great for like the first year, year and a half. But eventually she kind of started to say, why is it not coming alive? Why is it not coming alive? And right. I can't tell you how many times that we have forgotten Gizmo once, uh, once in the woods uh-huh. on a hike, right. once uh, at the uh, baseball fields, numerous times at grandma's house. And we would have to turn around and go back and get oh, Gizmo. I thought you were going to tell me he walked home and he was wa- sitting there and waiting for you. you oh, there. Lord. <laughs> Number 13, Die Hard. Die Hard is a 1988 American action film directed by John McTiernan and starring Bruce Willis. In the film, which is based on the 1979 novel Nothing Lasts Forever, Die Hard follows New York City police detective John McClane, who is caught up in the terrorist takeover of a Los Angeles skyscraper while visiting his estranged wife. And have you, have you seen Die Hard? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's Die Hard. There's what? Die Harder. Yeah. And there's like a... <laughs> die, die Hard with a Vengeance. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah. yeah. There, there's several of these. They're all okay, but the first one, the, the original was by far the best. I completely yeah. agree. And a lot of people consider that a Christmas movie because it happened at Christmas. And there's, there's a big debate about that, right? Yeah. Is, is that really a Christmas movie just because it happened <laughs> at Christmas? There's a really big debate on that. But yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can see that. It's so, a cool movie. A Christmas Story, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Die Hard. Die Hard. Holy Trinity of Christmas movies. Um, you know, I might also throw Batman Returns in there. It happened around the same time uh, and coincidentally stars Michael Keaton. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, a fun fact about Die Hard. Jason, they go through a lot of glass in that movie. I'd imagine so. <laughs> glass is, um, is, is something that's being destroyed all the time. They're either shooting it, they're jumping through it, they're looking at it, and it's just busting apart you know just in so many different scenes and the movie's production team actually spent about a hundred and thirty thousand dollars on just glass alone which is you know the equivalent wow. of, of about a college tuition's worth of glass <laughs> yeah. number 12 footloose footloose was another 1984 hit that is classified as a musical drama 
This is one of Kevin Bacon's most memorable films where he portrays Wren McCormack, a teenager from Chicago who moves to a rural town and leads a slight revolution against some extreme uh, conservative uh, value systems, which include a ban on dancing and rock music. Have you, no, have you seen <laughs> Footloose? Yeah, okay. I have. It's been a long time, but, I've, but I haven't watched a couple yeah. times. John Lithgow is a pastor in the town and father of McCormack's uh, love interest. And interestingly enough, uh, this is based on a true story. So the the town that the movie's actually based upon is named Elmore City. Okay. Elmore City, Oklahoma. And folks there, uh, several of the like uh, city officials and so forth, they kind of have a, an, un, an unofficial phrase or an unofficial motto of that city. And the unofficial motto is, <laughs> if the South is the Bible Belt, we are the buckle. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's kind of the that's kind of that's where they that's kind of where they stand on that. Yeah. And uh, you know, Kevin Bacon obviously would go on to be mega star, star in all kinds of movies. But one thing that really haunts him to this day about this movie is that he had four stunt men to fill in for him. He had two two stunt men, but he had two stunt dancers. I was going to say, what kind of stunts is so, he doing? Yeah. So. Yeah. Some of the dancing that you're actually seeing that movie, some of it is Kevin Bacon, but some of it is not. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so that kind of haunts him a little for bit. For whatever reason, when he uh, when he is interviewed about that, he always brings that up that he hated that that had to occur. Huh. I guess it was a pride thing. But is he a dancer though? <laughs> he's got a few moves. <laughs> he's got he's got one or two. I don't think he's like Michael Jackson so or he anything. He can do the hokey pokey. But, <laughs> yeah. Right? He can put his left foot in. <laughs> he can also take it out. Right. You know. Maybe a sprinkler, something like that. Something, yeah, yeah. Well, that makes but, sense. But Footloose, obviously, when you're talking about '80s movies, that's kind of a quintessential. Yeah, gotta have. I it. mean, kind of big hair and Walkman and, and that music. music. You gotta cut loose. Yeah, yeah. Footloose. That's what, was 80s. that for that song for that movie? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Number eleven, E. T. E.T., The Extraterrestrial, is a 1982 American science fiction film directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, It tells the story of Elliot, a boy who befriends an extraterrestrial dubbed E.T., who is stranded on Earth. And Jason, the concept for E.T. is based on an imaginary friend Spielberg created after his parents' divorce in 1960. There's always a backstory. Got him through some tough times. <laughs> yeah. Seems like none of these creators are just, you know, coming up with stuff off the cuff. It's like when I was four years old, I was locked in a closet and I had this vision. And I mean, it's just, it's the just mouse, wild. The mouse king came or whatever it is. <laughs> Uh, so E.T. is widely acclaimed by critics. Everybody loves it. Uh, it's considered to be actually one of the greatest films of all time. And in 1994, it was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Reg- Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It's a big deal. Yeah. So fun fact about E.T. Uh, E.T. was a puppet and not an actual alien. Did you know that? That's that's sad because I loved E.T. and that movie actually made me eat Reese's Pieces. Like I don't know <laughs> instead if, of M and M's. Instead of M and M's, yeah, because if you know if E.T. did it, I have to do it. it it's good enough for yeah. you. Yeah, and right? I also wanted a milk crate on my bicycle, <laughs> yeah. just for really no reason, but just after that. That's right. Yeah. So since E.T. was a puppet and not an actual alien actor, they had to accommodate all the wires and mechanics of the animatronic. So Spielberg had the production designers build the sets raised up on stilts so anytime you're looking at like a bedroom scene or something that has four walls it's actually sitting up on stilts. 
stilts so that they can go underneath and insert all the wires into the flooring that it took to control ET. And the puppeteers hmm, were actually interesting. In a, yeah, they, they were in another room watching all of this on a television monitor and just, you know, trying to act out the scene. And Spielberg encouraged all of the actors to treat ET as if it was an actual actor. Like this, this is someone in the scene. You respond to it as if it's someone in the scene. Like you said, there's no CGI because, you know, in today's world, there's CGI everywhere. So you typically have an actual actor there and they sort of digitally, you know, swap that out for the the CGI model. But you're you're sitting there with a practical effect, this puppet that's moving around and blinking (laughs) and and moving its head. And he even went so far uh, that he told young Drew Barrymore who was in this film, uh, who portrayed Gertie, which was, I think, the little sister of the boy. Spielberg told her that E.T. was a real alien. All right. So in the same way that you told (laughs) Kennedy that her gremlin gizmo was going to come to life, uh, Spielberg told Barrymore that, yeah, this this is a real alien. So treat it as such. And this adds even more of an emotional impact toward the end of the film uh, when Drew Barrymore cries real tears because of something bad that happens to E.T. She's devastated. She she thinks this was a real alien and this thing has occurred. So, you know, with, sad. with Drew Barrymore experiencing that as a kid and then I know at a really, really young age she made a Firestarter. She did. With Stephen King, you know, based <laughs> on Stephen King. Drew Barrymore saw some things she at did, a very man. early age. <laughs> she sure did. So we're getting ready to hit the top ten here. Let's take a quick break. Hey, everyone. We're happy to announce that the podcast now has a merchandise store. Shannon, everyone loves hoodies and everyone loves coffee. Yeah, and you can pick up a nice slapdash hoodie or a slapdash mug and drink your next cup of joe right out of a slapdash cup. (laughs) We also have t-shirts and stickers. Yeah, we do. So come on by and log on to www.slapdashpod.com forward slash store. That's www.slapdashpod.com forward slash store. So we are back and we are ready to review the top 10 movies of the 80s. Shannon, are you ready? Let's do it. Number 10, Top Gun. Top Gun hit the big screen in 1986 and was a huge success with a star-studded cast including Tom Cruise, Kelly McGillis, Val Kilmer, Anthony Edwards, Tim Robbins, and Tom Skerritt. Top Gun cost $15 million to make and cleared a whopping $356 million. Oh, man. The storyline revolves around Navy aviator Pete Maverick Mitchell and his co-pilot Nick Goose Bradshaw and all the mischief they get into both in the air and on the ground. The movie has action, comedy, romance, drama. Shannon's got it all. All the stuff. It's got everything in there. Uh, A few interesting points about the movie. The soundtrack to Top Gun was a nine-time platinum record and spent five consecutive weeks at number one on the charts. No doubt. Did it really? Yeah, and if you go back and look at, you know, and you really look at the songs that's that's on that particular uh, particular album, it's pretty good. Yeah, that's awesome. And then also interesting is uh, shortly after the movie debuted, there is a massive, massive jump in sales in Ray-Ban sunglasses. Oh, really? Yep. I, I bet that same thing happened after Men in Black came out. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. But nobody remembers it, though, because they no, use a little they, they neuralized flasher them. thing. Yeah, they right? don't remember yeah. anything. So Top Gun, obviously, uh, one of the biggies. Uh, it comes in here at number 10. It definitely made my top 10 list. You know, I often have a need, a need for speed. So <laughs> Top Gun has to make the list. Number nine, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 
Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a 1986 American teen comedy film written by John Hughes. The film stars Matthew Broderick as Ferris Bueller, a high school slacker who skips school for a day in Chicago. Throughout the entire film, Ferris breaks the fourth wall to talk about his friends and give the audience advice on various subjects. And you might remember uh, Jason Say by the Bell did this a lot later on and i don't know if they took this from ferris bueller but i just remember zach moore saying time out and everybody around him would pause and then he'd step up to the camera and say oh slater is about to be in big trouble here right (laughs) oh yeah i kind of forgotten about that but no that's exactly right yeah yeah they they also did that more recently in marvel's deadpool he he often breaks the fourth wall (laughs) and talks to the camera and does various things like that so kind of cool uh this film had a budget of roughly 5.8 million dollars but earned 70.1 million dollars at the box office that's a good deal pretty good turnaround so a few fun facts here uh other actors were considered to play ferris and this just blew me away so you were talking about alternative ways things could have went went down this would have changed everything so fun facts here uh john cusack could have been ferris i could see that though yeah i could see that rob lowe jim carrey Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I didn't know he was that popular in then, uh, in 86. That early? Or maybe he wasn't. Maybe he, maybe was he wasn't. A, maybe that was going right. to be his breakout role. Um, Johnny Depp was tapped to play. Uh, Tom Cruise, Robert okay. Downey Jr., and Michael J. Fox. And I, yeah. I could have seen Michael J. Fox play it, but... Yeah, those are all 80s names. I mean, those are, yeah, I mean, definitely. <laughs> they absolutely are. Um, what's funny about that, though, whenever I look at that list, I don't think of those actors necessarily as being the same age, even though they, they probably are, because Michael J. Fox, to me, is always going to be Marty McFly from Back to the Future, and he's, <laughs> what, 16 years old? Right. right, forever. You know, Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man, and he's 40-something, <laughs> yeah. you know? so Forever. Forever. That's, that's just how it is. Um, but the writer of the film, John Hughes, also wrote several other movies, some of which appear on this list, including The Breakfast Club, National Lampoon's Vacation, Sixteen Candles, Uncle Buck, Dennis the Menace, Beethoven, Baby's Day Out, and Home Alone, to name only a few. (laughs) Yeah, he was Mr. 80s. This guy did it all. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Number eight, The Goonies. The Goonies came out in 1985 with Steven Spielberg as the executive producer. The Goonies tells the tale of a group of kids who set out on a treasure hunt as a means to save their homes from foreclosure. While pursuing the treasure, the kids are chased by a criminal family and eventually become friends with a very interesting character named Sloth. Yeah, they do. And that that, that also made me want to eat Baby Ruth candy bars. So if you've never watched (laughs) The Goonies, go watch The Goonies. The Goonies now have, you know, basically it has a cult following, uh, but it also made a considerable uh, profit, earning about six times what it actually cost to produce. Uh, And a few interesting uh, points about this movie is that there's a particular scene, you know, late in the movie where the the kids sort of bust into this cave, right? And then they see the ship there, right? They've been looking for this ship sort of the whole movie and they see it. And the director did not want the kids to see that ship until they really saw the ship and so the reaction on their faces is literally genuine okay so the first time that they actually saw that they were in awe you as the viewer also saw it for the first time and you were sort of having this joint reaction to that because he he wanted the kids to have a really genuine you know excitement about them and so that's awesome thought that was pretty cool yeah and then another interesting point is that Jeff Cohen, who played Chuck, if you remember, right. uh, one of the little kids from the movie, that he was so concerned that he was going to lose his part, even as a, a young child, that uh, he refused to not show up at work, even though 
he was extremely contagious with chickenpox. Are you kidding? And he showed up on set and went ahead and went about his business. Did with, they let him act? With the full-blown chickenpox, yeah. And because huh. he was so scared that if he had to sit out a week or so that they would just give that part to someone else. All of a sudden it'd be somebody else. Right. And yeah. so uh, kudos to Jeff Cohen for uh, pushing through, even in the chickenpox. He at, pulled it off, man. At an early age. Yeah, salute. So do, so do you like the Goonies? I, yes, I do. It's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but yeah, it's one of those iconic 80s films. Like you said, if you haven't seen it, you have to see it. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's de- at, at least watch it once. It's definitely top 10 of the 80s. Definitely. Number seven, Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is a 1984 American supernatural comedy film written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramey. It stars Bill Murray as Peter Vinkman, uh, Harold Ramey as Egon Spangler, and Dan Aykroyd as Ray Stantz. I love this movie. (laughs) It's just great. Ghostbusters is probably, I think, one of the first two movies I ever watched in a theater. Oh, did you really sit in the theater? Yeah. Man, yeah. that's great. Yeah, I remember that. That's my, awesome. My uncle and aunt took me. So Ghostbusters follows three members of a science team who just lost their funding at a university in New York City. The team decides to become Ghostbusters to, to earn money because, you know, if you get fired from a, a college job, you got to do something. So might as well hunt uh, ghosts. Bust ghosts, right? <laughs> yeah. So while they're doing that, they discover a gateway to another dimension. And as these things go, the Ghostbusters have to save New York from the supernatural threat, which at one point includes a building-sized smiling marshmallow man <laughs> called the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. <laughs> and I had a uh, uh, several toys in, in the style of the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man when I was a kid. Oh yeah, I he's had, awesome. I had tons of Ghostbusters, uh, probably outside of GI Joe and Star Wars. Honestly, Ghostbusters was probably number three. Yeah, for I, me, I had the pack with the little yep. gun. I had the rollout trap that you press like a, a little thing with your foot or with something. your foot, and it, it popped open yeah. and some lights flashed. Man, I caught all kinds of ghosts <laughs> <laughs> around my neighborhood. Uh, but until the release of Home Alone, Ghostbusters was the highest grossing comedy of all time, grossing two hundred and ninety five point seven million dollars. Uh, also, there were several actors who were considered for the role of Dr. Peter Vinkman, which was Bill Murray's character. And man, God bless Bill Murray. He's uh, he he really, in a lot of ways, was just one of the perfect fits for that movie. He, oh, he's done just, a lot of great work yeah, since just, then. Just perfect. He, he's just a brilliant comedian. But other actors who were included were actually uh, a couple of people: Chevy Chase and Michael Keaton. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> I promise. He was almost a Ghostbuster, and man, the world missed out. That's that's all I can say. They just they just missed out on it. <laughs> Michael Keaton, twenty twenty. He could have been <laughs> could have been Batman. Could have been Beetlejuice, and he could have been Peter Vinkman uh, in in Ghostbusters. So but, talented, you know. Yeah, he he could have done it all. But Eddie Murphy and John Candy also turned down leading roles in the film. So it, it could have been a lot different. Hmm. Yeah, I really uh, like John Candy too. He's one we haven't mentioned a whole lot. Yeah. But man, his work's great. He was also sort of Mr. 80s. He was. To a large extent. Yeah. So uh, the final thing I'll share is that the film was originally written for uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. If you remember the the, the the Blues Blues, Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. So the team were going to travel through time and, and. and they were going to fight various supernatural threats, including ghosts and, and demons. That That's what Ghostbusters was going to be about. But John Belushi passed away before filming started. Oh, wow. I had no idea that. Yeah. And in tribute to Belushi, do you remember the, the green ghost called Slimer? That, oh, that's in yeah. The movie? yeah. Uh, so in tribute to Belushi, Dan Aykroyd referred to Slimer as the ghost of John Belushi. 
So really? I'll, I'll never watch that movie again the same without, without thinking, about, thinking about John Belushi. Yeah, huh. sure enough. Number six, National Lampoon's Vacation. National Lampoon's Vacation is a comedy that debuted in 1983 and focuses on Clark Griswold, played by Chevy Chase, who takes his family on a cross-country vacation to Wally World, which is supposed to be a super (laughs) big-time, fun-time amusement park. And, of course, like you'd expect... All the, the craziness just breaks loose, right? Nothing happens the way no, nothing, it should. No, everything goes awry. And, uh, you know, sadly, but also hysterically, at the end, they finally arrive. You know, so the, the father and the husband has, you know, he finally has triumphed, right? So they, they <laughs> pull it. into the parking they lot. Arrive. Yeah. And, and it's a happy ending, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> so they, they pull into Wally World and it's closed. No. <laughs> and like, you know, today when I think about that, you know, obviously you have cell phones and you would just check to make sure on stuff like that. But I mean, you could theoretically see where that could possibly happen like back like in the early 80s oh absolutely you just assume it's open right yeah so they they pull in and of course speaking of john candy he comes out and he's like you know (laughs) hey guys (laughs) you know wally world's closed oh he's a character oh yeah Yeah. uh chevy chase's character basically does not take no for an answer (laughs) oh they're going to wally world we're going to wally world one way or another and he basically takes him hostage, <laughs> and they go into the amusement park, and uh, they begin to ride the rides. And, uh, of course, ultimately the owners show up and the police, and they decide not to press charges. And, and then, of course, you know there were, uh, I think, at least uh, two, I think, sequels off of this movie. Obviously, there was oh, the, right. yeah. cr- uh, Christmas. The Christmas Vacation, yeah. which I would argue is just as good, if not yeah. better. Yeah. Uh, so that's, you know, I mean, obviously National Lampoon's Vacation. When you think comedies, uh, that's obviously a big one for the 80s. Uh, a couple of interesting uh, points here. Uh, many of the characters, including Chevy Chase, got very, very sick due to the roller coasters sh- while shooting those scenes at Wally World. Oh. Like almost all of them. Like they would, they would shoot for just a few minutes. So they were really on those rides. They were really on those okay. rides, including John Candy. Uh, and they would have to just, I mean, like very, very often have to get off and just go throw up. And uh, one of the actors actually would pass out because they would get so lightheaded due to the motion sickness. And so they almost had to scrap all of that ending in really? terms of them being on the roller coaster because they just like, handle it. none of them could handle it. Yeah. And it was all they could do. Like they just, everyone got sick every, every, every shot. When you said they all got sick, I thought, man, maybe John Candy had the chicken pox and he just didn't want to lose his job. So he just showed <laughs> I'm up. I'm John Candy and I'm there. But to uh, to let you know how how big of a star John Candy was during the, the early 80s here, you know, Candy played a very minor role in that movie, right? He it's did. At, at, yeah. the, at the very end. But for his role, he was paid $1 million. Really? So he was already that big of a star yeah. at the time. I mean, that's, that's $1 million for a limited role in 1983. That's been a while. And I'd have done it. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Number five, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark is a 1981 American action-adventure film directed by Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg's pretty popular on this list. He did some things in the 80s. He's also Mr. 80s. Yeah. And uh, the film is the first installment in the Indiana Jones franchise and stars Harrison Ford in the leading role. In the film, Indiana Jones battles a group of Nazis searching for the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones also battles against a snake phobia. Uh, He's always in constant peril, and he's always making these very narrow escapes at every turn. That's the bread and butter of this film is that he barely gets away. 
Every time. Every single time. (laughs) Uh, George Lucas was co-writer of the story that inspired Indiana Jones, and the film originated from Lucas's desire to create sort of a a modern version of those serial films of the 1930s and the 1940s, those sort of action-adventure, come to the theater, watch... It was almost like an early television episodic sort of thing right. that they did, but you you saw it in the theater each week. Mm. You know these different adventures, and come back next week for chapter two of you know right. whatever. Uh, so Raiders of the Lost Ark was sort of uh, you know an homage to that. Now, fun fact here: George Lucas's dog, who was named Indiana, inspired the name for the leading character as well as the look of Chewbacca from Star Wars. So, good, I, good boy. I do a pretty good Chewbacca. Do you really? Yeah, you want to hear it? I do. All right. Man, that's great. <laughs> First one's free. The second one will charge you. Well, you, you are part Sasquatch. That's I right. I think we established that in a previous episode. Uh, but yeah, originally George Lucas wanted to name uh, the lead character Indiana Smith, which doesn't have the same ring to no. it at all. But Spielberg requested a change because he thought the name was too similar to a 1966 Western, which was called Nevada Smith. So you have oh, Indiana okay. Smith, Nevada Smith. Pretty yeah, close. I can yeah. see that. So they both agreed to change the name to Jones because it kind of kept with the sort of the universal name there, and it was sort of nondiscreet, and you could insert yourself into that absolutely you know, that's that's jones you know that's right. that's me that's a very away common that boulder name, yeah. Or, or whatever yeah so indiana jones there, there's been a few of these it's a good movie i'm a huge indiana jones fan this was uh, easily in my top 10 easily in my top five number four the breakfast club the Breakfast Club is a 1985 coming-of-age drama that focuses on several high school students from different social cliques, all having to serve detention on a Saturday. The movie is one of the best works of legendary director John Hughes, who we've mentioned already here a couple times. He's great. The movie had a budget of $1 million, but made $51 million at the box office. Wow. So they, they raked it in, huh? $50 million bucks. The Breakfast Club starred several up-and-coming actors and actresses, including Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy. And a couple of interesting points here. Uh, it only took John Hughes a total of two days to write the entire script for the movie. Wow, that's impressive. Just two days. Yeah. And uh, when he cast the role that uh, Ali Sheedy played, that she actually had auditioned for the role in 16 Candles that Molly Ringwald uh, had actually won. Yeah. And so, but during the audition for 16 Candles, John Hughes remembers Sheedy that she actually had two black eyes from from an accident. During that, during the audition, during, during the audition, and he distinctly remembered that he said it kind of gave her some kind of like a a gothic kind of feel, mm. but it was unintentional. Right. So then, when uh, obviously they were, you know, they began to interview people for uh, roles in this movie, he wanted that kind of uh, a role. Sure, you know, he's he, looking for a basket case. He wanted of. that character. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, her her black eyes had gotten better by then. You know, obviously, <laughs> right. but he said, "Hey, can can we do that again? Can this you stand time, on the ladder again. Yourself. I just need to <laughs> right. double check something real quick. Right. So." So, you know, she actually, uh, you know, came in runner up with 16 candles and ironically, you know, Molly Ringwald was in oh, this right. movie as well. Yeah. You know, so pretty cool. It's a good movie. I just always remember the fifth scene at the end. Oh uh, yeah. What's the guy's name? I can't remember the actor, but it's the, the one who plays the tough guy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, 
It's Judd Nelson. Is it right? Judd Nelson? I think so. yeah. 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 So at the end, he's walking across the the football field or whatever. And he just throws his fist up in the yeah. air. It's like, uh, I've won today. That, right. That's the '80s to me. Yeah. Man. Oh yeah. That the you know power fist into right. the sky as you walk yeah. away. <laughs> that's that scene, and then uh, you know the movie where John Cusack is holding up the big boombox. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah. I don't think that's on this list. No, but but, but that's also that's a, good one. a pretty good scene. Yep. Number three, Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing is a 1987 American romantic dance drama written by Eleanor Bergstein. It stars Jennifer Grey as Frances Baby Houseman, a young woman who falls in love with dance instructor Johnny Castle at a holiday resort. Uh, And of course, Castle is played by Patrick Swayze. Now, Jason, Patrick Swayze was offered $6 million to star in a sequel to this movie and he refused for nearly two decades because he said he just hated the idea of sequels now he liked this movie and and he should have it it earned him a lot of money (laughs) but he he finally caved in and he made an appearance in the sequel dirty dancing havana nights in 2004 and uh, another cool fact about this movie in the scene where baby and johnny are dancing in the water it's actually october so so it's very cold goodness yeah but it's supposed to be depicted as summertime in the movie so the leaves had to be spray painted to look like summer because all the leaves were colorful and if you look very closely you can see that they're actually falling off the trees which didn't actually happen or doesn't happen in the summertime sort of opposite halloween style well when it was spring and they had to make it look fall yeah that's what came to mind i thought about that uh john carpenter you know what what he had to do for halloween yeah because they had to bring in i think uh, squash in place of pumpkins because pumpkins were out of season they had to spray paint the leaves different colors because they were all green so yeah this is the exact opposite of this um but yeah have you seen this movie very much yeah i've watched it a couple times uh my wife loved it like i think when she was like sort of a a young kid kind of growing up she just uh this movie and annie Oh really? So, yeah, yeah. So so Dirty Dancing and Annie were <laughs> were, uh, were were Mindy's two big hits. That's so awesome. Mindy can recite the entire movie flawlessly from this beginning one here? to end. Yes, Can't I mean you really the pauses, everything. So so she knows that nobody puts baby in a corner. Nobody puts baby right? in a corner. That's right. <laughs> you know, as I've gotten older, I, I saw someone else say this, and I I agree with this. I've started to identify a little bit more with Baby's dad. Um, because she wanted to keep him, keep her away from this dude who's her dance instructor, right. you know. And in the movie, you know, the dad's sort of been made out to be a villain. But man, that that dad had it right, I think. Yeah, the dad's just a practical dude. <laughs> he, he's just make, he's just taking care of his baby. That's exactly right. right. Number two, Back to the Future. Back to the Future debuted in 1985, and whatever it is, Back to the Future had it. Written and directed by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, Back to the Future focuses on Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, where, thanks to his good friend and scientist Doc Brown, travels back to 1955, where he accidentally becomes his own mother's love interest. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, man. Yeah, this movie just captivated everyone. Yeah. I mean, everyone was a fan of Back to the Future. It's, it's I huge. Loved it. I've seen it so many times. And you mentioned the, uh, the where he goes back in time and uh, his mom starts sort of falling in love right, with him a little yeah. bit. Uh, Disney passed on the movie script for that same reason. Uh, because they that. said, that, yeah, this uh, we can't have a movie about this. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of interesting facts. Uh, the Time Machine 
was obviously a DeLorean. But uh, at first, the uh, car, the, the DeLorean, was not their, their first choice. At first, they thought it would be a better idea to turn a refrigerator in, <laughs> into a time machine. They were wrong. So, yeah, I think the, the uh, DeLorean with the doors and, yeah. and, you know. But did the refrigerator open that way? <laughs> that that could have been the difference maker, you know. Yeah, what was in the refrigerator? That's that's a that's, better point. That's what you know, I'm I'm mostly concerned about. So they have to get it up to 88 miles per hour. <laughs> good luck. Good luck with that. <laughs> just roll it down a hill, right? Funny, we're in the future. <laughs> no, you're just in the backyard. You're hurt very badly. <laughs> that's what we call a concussion, Marty. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, another interesting fact is that the uh, the fictitious city of Hill Valley uh, in the uh, Back to the Future movie is the exact same set where just about a year earlier that Gremlins was shot. Oh, so really? So you see yeah. some of the same architecture, same buildings, maybe the lettering's a little bit different. But when you look at the set and like the, the downtown, so to speak, of uh, the Gremlins, it's identical to Back to the Future. So deja vu a That's little right, bit. All over again. That's awesome. Number one, The Karate Kid. The Karate Kid is a 1984 American martial arts drama directed by John G. Alvidson. It is the first installment in the Karate Kid franchise and stars Ralph Macchio as Daniel LaRusso, Pat Morita as Mr. Miyagi, and Elizabeth Shue as Allie Mills. So the story revolves around Daniel, and he moves with his mother to Southern California and begins to be bullied by a group of classmates who study karate at the Cobra Kai dojo which is the best name for a karate dojo ever <laughs> cobra like, kai c- c- could it be I mean, any better than that fortunately daniel befriends mr miyagi a repairman who is actually a martial arts master good good for him as fate would have it it, it just so happened miyagi trains daniel and daniel eventually faces off against his arch nemesis johnny lawrence <laughs> played by william zapka so a few facts about the movie you might remember one of the most famous scenes, it happens right at the end. Daniel delivers a, a crane kick to the chin of Johnny Lawrence. Do you remember this? He oh, kinda, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he puts his arms up. He assumes the position, and it, it just knocks Lawrence down, and, and he wins the tournament. And he's hopping on you know, one foot, right, because he has the bad leg, I think. Oh, that's yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah, He's like, yeah, sweep the knee. Yeah. <laughs> they take him out. Um, but according to karate tournament experts, Daniel should have actually been disqualified for using that kick uh, because competition rules prohibit participants from striking their opponent using full force. And this knocked Johnny flat on his back. Like he was out cold. And that's why those experts don't make movies. That's true. <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's consult the experts. They said we can't do this kick. Never mind. <laughs> I know. It's the karate kid. <laughs> I know. I, okay. So, so, first of all, this doesn't surprise me that karate kid is number one, right? No. I mean, I knew one. it would yeah. be top five. It doesn't surprise me at all. It's number one. I love the movie. Right. Uh, there was there were a few very brief periods in my life where I went through during the 80s where I thought I was the karate kid. That was that was one. Oh yeah. I thought I was Rambo on, yeah. on, on another one. But there was one particular scene in the Karate Kid and I loved them all. I even loved the sequel. You know, I had some of the action figures. I did too. Lo- loved loved it all. They made a few of those. Yeah. Uh, they did, yeah. Uh but there was one p- a particular scene. I think it maybe is the last the last scene in the movie, uh, perhaps, or one very close to it. In the sequel? In in the original. Oh, in the first where, one. Where yeah. uh Pat Morita uh, you know, Mr. Miyagi, where he has the most satisfying, like, grin and kind of like <laughs> he gets pretty happy. like, like, just sort of, uh, you know, head like just shaking and nodding, like, yes, all, all is right in <laughs> the world, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> he reminds me of a Happy Days character. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he was actually so, in Happy Days, of course. I, I absolutely loved 
love that part of the movie. It's like all is right in the world, and like Mr. <laughs> Miyagi knew the ending. If you can all make along. him smile, then man, you've you've just won right. a contest. It's right. it's fantastic. I'm not too surprised that Karate Kid is uh, where it's at. I think everyone, when looking at this list, would have chosen Karate Kid in their top ten. And as long as uh-huh. that's true, you have a really good chance of winning right. it all. And this is just one of those movies where you know that that's going to happen. Now, the Karate Kid has returned to the screen in recent years with YouTube's Cobra Kai series. Have you seen? Any I of have this? not seen that. No, it's great. You is should it good? see it. It brings back the original cast, and it has a twist though. It follows Johnny Lawrence uh, 34 years after the events of the Karate Kid. He's kind of a down-on-his-luck repairman. Uh, so everything sort of shifts around. Daniel uh, is now the owner of a, of a car lot, you know, because I, I know cars were a big deal in the first movie. I think Mr. Yeah. Miyagi gifts Daniel yeah. a car. Uh, so he's the owner of a car lot. He's, he's very wealthy. And um, Johnny Lawrence is not. It, it's like he lost his high school karate tournament, and his life just, just went straight down. Spiraled out of control. Huh? Yeah, so he assumes, um, eventually, he assumes leadership over the Cobra Kai dojo, and he reopens it up and starts training a new generation. And it follows, you know, that dynamic of johnny lawrence on the other side and he's almost portrayed as like the good guy you know like a redemptive arc Hmm. for him whereas daniel larusso's kind of the spoiled kid who grew up and had everything and you know Hmm, was was rich sounds awesome it's really good yeah Yeah, you should watch that check that out so jason we're at the end of our top 20 list but we do have a few honorable mentions sure i go through these real quick so we had uh, Star Wars, uh, Return of the Jedi, which okay. was in the 80s. So we, we discussed that, right? We and did. So since, since the original Star Wars, I think, was in the 70s, Correct. right? Yep. We just kind of said the Star Wars, the entire series, we, we would sort of kind of exempt the 80s from that, I guess, yeah, so but, to speak. But fear not, listeners. We will have some Star Wars content That's in right. the future. That's we, we've got some plans. That's right. Uh, the Never Ending Story, was that in the 80s? I guess it was. I don't know. You know what? It's the flying dog. It's Remember the flying that? big white. Yeah, but I never watched that entire movie. Yeah. yeah. I've seen it. I, I guess it's the 80s, uh, yeah, but I, I don't sure. remember it uh, super well. 16 Candles, which we've mentioned uh, several times here. That could have easily been on the list. Yeah. Annie, I, I have no idea who put that on there. <laughs> I, I have no idea, Mindy, who would have done <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which we mentioned. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Pretty in Pink. It's a good one. Also, uh, Molly Ringwald, too. Yep, I, think I think so. Yeah. Uh, Roadhouse. Uh, oh, the, I, I had totally forgot about that. Yeah. Ro- Roadhouse is a good one. Yeah. Uh, the Princess Bride, which is really good, too. Oh, I, yeah. Is that 80s? I have a hard time between like 80s and early mid 90s yeah. sort of thing. I guess it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Batman, 1989. How did it miss the list? Oh, my gosh. And I didn't write this in, Jason. This is a this completely different person. It, prob- it probably was Michael Keaton that wrote it in. <laughs> Michael Keaton's listening to the podcast. If he is, we need to meet up and, and have dinner, man. It's on me. And that's it. So so those that sort of rounds out the list of uh, top 80s movies. I, I really enjoyed this. So were there any that weren't on here that, that you thought of that should have been mentioned? You know, mentioned? Uh, really just, I guess maybe 16 Candles, that, that was one that I, I kind of uh, really had some problems with. I thought maybe it should have been on the list. Sure. And then obviously the big one for me would have been Star Wars because you know, yeah. there, there would have been a couple of those movies that, That's that, a big one. that came out in the 80s. But we just sort of made the decision since the original you know, it was in the 70s that, right. we'll, that we'll leave that series parked there. We have a lot of exciting content on the horizon, man. So lots to look forward to. And we... Uh, including Star Wars. Including a Star whole, Wars. A whole episode on Star it's Wars. It's going to happen. 
So, Jason, we just hit 9,000 downloads on the podcast. That, that's pretty cool. We are slowly making our way toward 10,000. And, of course, that was really our goal when we started back last uh, mid-September. Mid-September, yeah. And so we're getting there. So we're now less than 1,000 away. We're trucking along little by little, and uh, we, we appreciate everyone who is listening to the podcast each week. You all help us out so much. If you want to help the podcast, please share it with a friend. That's really the best thing you can do is pass it along to someone else. Uh, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at slapdash pod. We make new weekly episodes and release those on Mondays and Thursdays in history, art, science, and everything else. And we'll catch you in the next episode. Take care, everybody. 